Well, hello there to uh, Pastor Tracy and all of my friends at uh, Warrigal Anglican Church. Uh, I'm really, really hoping I could get out there someday, maybe once this uh, whole pandemic is finally over, I'll be uh, glad to get there. Otherwise, I am very happy. In fact, I'm elated once again for the opportunity uh, to share with you some time in God's Word. Uh, largely as part of uh, Ridley Sunday, this is the, you know, the time of the year where we go around and we want to make sure that all the Anglican churches know about Ridley College and that we're very eager uh, to help and, and serve you any way we can. We want you to think of Ridley College as your college for all your theological training needs. Uh, now, the passage I've chosen to speak from uh, today uh, is one of my favorites. It's one of my all-time favorites. It's from the book of Revelation, chapter 5. So that, that's what I want to share with you. Uh, it's a good idea if you get a chance to watch a really good um, uh, reading of this, even a dramatic one or a sort of, you know, artsy one you can find on YouTube. There's a few really good one of those are really do recommend a, a, listening to a dramatic reading of Revelation 5 on somewhere like YouTube or on some sort of Bible audio. Now, there's a, there's, there's a reason why I like this passage, and it's not because it's, it's all about, you know, Revelation and the end times and which presidential candidate is the Antichrist or anything like that. I, I see in Revelation uh, one of the best visions of Christian hope and certainly, as well, one of our greatest inspirations as to why we should worship God and serve in the church of Jesus Christ. I think what you'll see as we, as we go through it, uh, that's one of the best things about this passage. Now, I don't know about uh, where you are right now, but where I am now, I need to pray because this is, a, this is a text that you really need to pray for. So, Lord, I pray you bless me as I try to explain your sacred and holy word so we could be encouraged and we could be edified. In Christ's name, the Lamb who has risen, I pray. Amen. Okay, now, with the pandemic on, I'm guessing a lot of you have probably been watching uh, maybe a few extra movies on Netflix or Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or something like that. I mean, I've watched my own share as well. And what makes a really good movie is partly how they set up the conflict, you know, because all movie, movies are about some kind of conflict. And in the book of Revelation, there is quite a lot of conflict. There's spiritual conflict. There's the conflict between the church and the forces of the Roman Empire, between the, you know, re the religion of the Christians and the religion, not just of, but the religion about the Roman emperor, with the Roman emperor a demanding God-like worship. And in the book of Revelation, we see uh, all the, the, the trials and travails coming upon God's people. If you read chapters two to three of the book of Revelation, you know, the letters to the seven churches, you see some of the things the churches are going through. They're experiencing persecution, but they're also experiencing a, a cultural acculturation, a compromise, being lazy, lethargic, and lukewarm in their faith. So the, the situation of the church is less than ideal. Uh, in, in some cases, in fact, it's quite dire. But then when you get to chapter four, you've got this incredible vision of the worship of heaven, as if everything sucks down on earth, but everything is fine up in heaven. You know, the, the, the angels are still worshiping God. 
everything's terrific. They're all bowing down in praise. Now that that does create a type of conflict because everything sucks for the church down here and yet everything seems to be fine for the Lord God up in heaven. I mean, how do we reconcile these two things? I mean, this is the conflict that John presents to us, the sort of dissonance between these uh, earthly and heavenly realities. Now, his solution to that, I believe, comes in chapter 5, where we have a further vision of heaven, of God on the throne, but we see the particular way in which God's plan for the redemption of the world, for the rescue of creation, is going to be executed in a mysterious way through the lamb who was slain, through none other than the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. This is where we'll see a really good uh, presentation of how God puts the world to rights, how God vindicates his martyrs, how he brings a reordering of power, and how God's people are going to reign with him in a new creation. So that's, uh, that is what we're going to see in this chapter. So if you look at verse one, and this is how the, the section begins, it's kind of like a report of a vision or some sort of experience that John is having. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, the idea of having a, uh, a scroll um, for iconography or, you know, art about Roman emperors, they could often be described as sitting on a throne and, and holding a scroll with like, you know, their decrees and their orders or, or something like that. So that's the picture we've got of God. He looks very regal, very powerful, and he's got this, this something, something, something like a, a will or a testament or a plan of some kind that seems to be in his hand. But, but then know what comes next in verses two to four. John says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. John's concern is that the contents of the scroll which are undoubtedly good, cannot be accessed and opened because no one is able to approach God's throne because, you know, of all the, the glassy sea that's in front of it that we saw described in chapter four. No one can approach the throne. No one can break the seals. No one can open the scroll. And therefore, no one can execute the Father's plan of salvation. And if that is the case, it means the current dire situation is going to be prolonged. It means Caesar will still be the lord of this world with all his tyranny, with all his malevolence. It means death has the last laugh. It means the, the, the world with all its corruption and all its misery and despair is just perpetuated in that state. And that is why John weeps, because the, the solution, the antidote to the world's suffering it's right in front of him. It's there, but no one can access it. 
you know, or imagine you've got a, a very sick child and you want to go to the, uh, the hospital in, in, in an emergency, but you, you can't get there because, you know, all the roads are blocked or, or there's been a flood and, and you can't get across the waters to get to hospital or, or something like that. That is the nature of John's despair. The, the antidote, the medicine is right there but he can't access it. And that is why he weeps. But that's not the end of the story because in verse five, one of the elders, that's you know, one of the sort of the heavenly entourage, um, sort of, you know, tugs John on the sleeve and, and, and says to him, uh, do not weep. Uh, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, that, that language that this elder used, it's, it's very biblical. This is Old Testament language. He's talking about a messianic figure, you know, a Davidic deliverer, you know, the type you would find somewhere like Genesis 49, you know, where the scepter will not depart from Judah or something you might find in the book of Isaiah or Daniel or the Psalms. And that, that's, that's where this language of the root of David comes from or the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a way of describing Israel's Messiah. I mean, the elder is effectively saying, look, see the Messiah. He has triumphed. Okay. And, and, and this is what is emphasized and not just in Revelation, but in other Christian literature that Christ through his death has triumphed over death. He's trampled down death by his death. He has won a victory over the powers. He has purchased our redemption. And in the book of Revelation opens on that very theme where, where the risen Jesus in himself says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am li I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I live and I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Or else in the gospel of John, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. That is the good news that John's tears are met with when the elder draws his attention towards the, towards the Messiah. And then John looks for this lion from the tribe of Judah. And then what he sees is none other than a lamb. Look what John writes. He says that I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now, th this is a truly astounding part of the book of Revelation. For a start, you've got the almost comical imagery. It's like, you know, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what we are then presented with is an image of a lamb that's being slaughtered. I mean, imagine if I said to you, you know, behold, the jaguar of God's wrath. And I presented you with a mouse that had been squished. You'd be kind of scratching your head saying, well, how do these two things go together? The jaguar of God's wrath and a mouse that's been squished. Well, it, what John is doing, he's piling metaphor upon metaphor or image upon image because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the triumphant Messiah is none other than the Lord Jesus who triumphs by being our Passover lamb, by being the one who was bruised for our iniquities, the one on whom our sins were laid and our healing made 
real. That is the divine irony that God's power and redemption comes in the midst of death, despair, disempowerment of weakness. And yet it is there that we see the true power of God. And what is very unique is not only is the is, is the, the lamb able to come and take the scroll, but he is already standing on the divine side of the divide. He's already standing in the midst of the throne. Okay. So he, he he's not some human being who's got to navigate his way towards the heavenly realm, make his way through a maze to God. He already belongs to the God side of the equation. This is God for us. This is God with us because this is God as one of us in the Lamb. And he is the one who is worthy and able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, some of the language we get there about the seven horns and the seven, high, uh, seven eyes, uh, th this, this is very deep symbolic language for his kingly authority, having complete knowledge and understanding. And what follows after that is the description of, of what should be the result of this. If this is the one who's going to execute the Father's plan of salvation. We see in verses 9 to 10 that he is slain. He, he purchases or he ransoms uh, people from their sins with his very own blood. And then we also see he's made them a kingdom of priests. In other words, we have a new salvation and a new people of God being brought together. Okay, I mean, if you, if you don't like multi-ethnic churches, trust me, the afterlife is going to be very, very disappointing. He brings all these people from different parts of the earth. He makes them his kingdom and his priests to serve him, and they're going to reign with him. That, that is the goal of humanity, to reign with Christ in a new creation. That's what Adam was meant to do in the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve, they were meant to reign on behalf of God over the creation, but it went all kind of awry. It, it fell apart. But the restoration of creation, the renewal of humanity, it means that covenantal task of reigning over creation will be restored. And that is because God has always involved his human creatures in his divine rule. And that is epitomized, that climax is something in the reign of Jesus Christ over his church as the firstborn of new creation. But that service, that covenantal task is going to be returned to the renewed humanity, the new Adamic race that Christ is all already creating in himself. Now, after that, we get this uh, wonderful vision of the worship of the lamb. And you can read the imagery there, you know, it's got angels and elders and everyone bowing down, talking about how the lamb is worthy. He is worthy to receive people's worship, glory, honor, and praise, and the whole thing. And that is probably, you know, the note I would want to focus on about, you know, the lamb is worthy of our praise and particularly of your service. You know, every now and then people ask me, you know, they ask me sometimes, you know, how I became a Christian, which is one particular story. But then they ask me why I remain a Christian. I mean, why, why are you still a Christian? And I could give several answers, you know, atheism sounds pretty bleak and Buddhism looks a little bit weird for my tastes. Uh, good tax breaks, good Anglican schools. Uh, but no, it's nothing to do with that. The reason why I remain a Christian, and this may be true for you as well, is very simple. Because of the complete and utter worshipability of Jesus Christ. 
And I think that is the point of revelation, not merely the disclosure of God's plan through the, through the Lamb, through the Messiah, who can open the scroll and execute it, but because Jesus is worthy of our worship. And he is worthy because although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but he emptied himself and took the very form of a servant being made in human likeness. He is worthy because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom of many. Because where Adam was faithless and failed, the new Adam Christ was faithful and obedient to his messianic task, and he is able now to redeem the fallen race of Adam and Eve's children and progeny. We worship him because he has the words of eternal life. We worship him because for the joy that was set before him, not for duty, not to keep the peace, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame because he has the keys to death and Hades, because he breaks down the boundaries of class, gender, ethnicity, and out of the diverse and divided and fragmented people, he makes a new humanity united in love, peace, and grace. We worship him because he intends to build his church and the doors of death and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We worship him because he he is the only being in the cosmos who can approach the divine throne, take the scroll from the Father, and put it into action. We worship him because his power is immeasurable, his compassion unsurpassable, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, his reign is eternal, his justice is inescapable, because he's not safe, but he's good, and he's promised to make all things new and to put all things right. We worship him because he is our justification, our redemption, and our holiness. We worship him because he is a healer to the sick, a comfort to the despairing, he is peace for the afflicted, and he is warmth to those who are tired and cold from the pains of life. I worship him because for 30 years I have followed my Lord and Savior and he has done me no wrong. And with my dying breath, I will say I have entrusted myself to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that was the single greatest decision of my life. That is why we worship him. That is why I believe Jesus is worthy of your worship. And if he is worthy of your worship, he's also worthy of your service. One thing we all have to do is discern within the precincts of our own conscience. How do we serve God? You know, we've, you know, we've all got other responsibilities, you know, family, business, work, getting an education, all that type of thing. And that's all good. That's all fine. But along the way, if we are going to be that kingdom of priests, if we are going to follow in the way of Jesus Christ, then we need to figure out how we are going to serve in that mission, in that task, in that vocation as a church corporately, locally, and individually. And what I would leave you with is the question, or even the challenge, if Jesus is worthy of your worship, and I, and I hope he is for you, I hope he is, how can you express that in service? Because I think that is the real challenging thing that comes out of the book of Revelation, this chapter. No, 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 not trying to identify certain people from politics with certain characters from the book of Revelation. That's, that's nothing. 
It's about the lamb being worthy of our worship and therefore the one we serve with our whole heart, energy, life, and imagination. And uh, I play, pray that the, uh, the God would, would bless you and be with you as you discern in your own way how you can worship and serve God. Make much of Christ in all that you say and do. In Christ's name, uh, may that be the case. In the name of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, above all, to Tracy for the opportunity to come and share with you. And if I can ever help you out with anything to deal with theological study, um, either for your own improvement or maybe you know, going on for ministry, um, I'd, I'd love to talk to you sometime. God bless you. And hopefully one day I'll get down your way soon. Thank you very much.